We're back in the Strength and the Things That Remain series this morning. By the way, if you did not get a bulletin when you came in, I've got some extra handouts related to this morning's teaching. Does anybody need these? Does everybody have a handout? Can, ladies, can you divvy these out to anybody that can use them? This will come in, a, in here in just a little bit. If you remember the series Strength and the Things That Remain, Bill, you're a little late, buddy. Yeah, get as many as you want. Is a phrase from uh, the book of Revelation. Jesus told the church at Sardis that although they had a reputation that they were alive, they were a vibrant group. He says, really, you're not. You're dead, and you need to wake up and strengthen the things that remain. Starting this morning, I'm going to give another vacation reference. I think this will be my last... uh, we were in England a month ago. I'd mentioned last week that we visited St. Paul's Cathedral in London and Westminster, and these were grand places. But we also visited a building that was in 2001. It was voted the, the most popular building in England from Brits. It wasn't the palace. It wasn't a number of other things. It was actually another cathedral, and that was uh, Durham Cathedral, uh, up where Adrian went to school. So there's a city and there's a cathedral, and there's a university all at Durham. Um, this cathedral, uh, to tell you the truth, I'm not sure why it was voted the favorite building in all of England, but it had like 51 or 52% of the vote. Uh, it's a neat place, you know, as far as these things go. It's like a 1,000 years old. It's a Norman construction, so if you go in, it's got these huge round columns that have, I guess, typical of Norman construction, these zigzag designs on them got a ton of history of course but just physically it is awe-inspiring and if you go in the center you can look up the bell tower straight above you in the center of the church it's over 200 feet tall and you know 200 feet tall for us today is not a big deal but you're talking about guys on scaffolding putting up rock cut by hand you know a thousand years ago this is a fairly impressive thing if you're energetic you can walk up i think it's 327 stairs to the top of the bell tower, and you can gain some fabulous views of the English countryside all around there. Um, I actually didn't think it was as pretty as St. Paul's, certainly. And, of course, St. Paul's about 600 years newer, a little, little different design. But I tell you, my favorite part of the, the uh, cathedral there was this. Uh, the bells rang, and, you know, lots of bells ring on the quarter hour, but when there was a wedding there, these uh, bells would sort of this cascading... Uh, ringing. I'm not even sure how to describe it. Really, really pretty. And when we took our tour, I said something about the bells, and and I assumed it was so pretty. And all these different bells, you know, their tones, sort of like a river. I don't know how else to describe it, like water running. You know, they would peel one after another. I thought it was all automated. They said, oh, no, that's all done by hand. These guys practice at this. It was just, it was gorgeous. So you got this great cathedral, the, the, the most favorite building in Britain, according to the Brits, at least in 2001. You know, it's awe-inspiring, it's huge, it's old, it's got all this history. It's many, many things. The one thing, though, that cathedral is not is this. It is not a church. It's not a church. <clears throat> That's supposed to bring you up short, and you're supposed to be saying, what in the world are you thinking about? Uh, <clears throat> it's not a church. Uh, and any building you go to where Christians gather, you know what, those buildings, they're, they're not churches either. Just by definition, buildings are not churches. Uh, we are the church. 
Buildings may be many things. Those cathedrals are many things. But the church, they are not. When you read in your English Bible the word church, you're reading a translation of one of two terms, two Greek terms. The first is this. And I know these sound like a stretch, but the first Greek word is kyrios or kurios. And that's the, the Greek word for Lord. So if you were a good Scotsman, you wouldn't say church. You would say the kirk. And that would be closer to the Greek root, the kirk, the kurios. And it just means those people who belong to Christ the Lord. That's what that word means. When we say church, if it's from kurios, it's those who belong to the Lord. The other word is ekklesia, and that's actually the more common one. And in the Greek, that just means outspoken or outcalled. So if you want a definition of the church, you could go two different ways on this, but it's this. The church are those people in a special relationship with Christ the Lord. That would be one definition. Or another would be the church is or are those people who have heard Christ's call and have responded in faith and follow Him out of this world order, this world order that's opposed to Him, follow Him in this life. No matter how you slice it, the church is not a building. The church is people. The church is you and I. And it's all those who through faith in Christ have been saved from the day of Pentecost on. You know, in contrast, uh, if you think of the old cathedrals in England, or frankly, if you go, you know, the mega churches today, you're looking at not just, uh, they wouldn't call them cathedrals. You're not just looking at a church building. You're looking at campuses, right? Huge. I mean, they're, they're seating thousands of people in the same facility every Sunday, multiple thousands. But you know, in contrast to those huge dimensions architecturally or the huge numbers, you know, at its basic level, the church is even two or three people who've gathered together in Christ's name because that's what Jesus says in Matthew 18. If even two or three of you are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. That's the church. So you could have two or three Russian Christians meeting in the woods, that's the church. No cathedral, no grand building, no huge numbers. Or in China, you think of the oppressed areas, two or three meeting in Christ's name, that's the church. You don't have to have dramatic, awe-inspiring buildings. You don't have to have huge numbers. The church, even two or three gathered together. The call this morning is to wake up to the reality of the church, what the church is, and what Jesus wants for us in the church. That's the wake-up call this morning. You know, if you think about the church in the West today, the church has definitely fallen on hard times, and for a number of reasons, some sort of self-imposed and some not. Uh, Sunday school, we're going through the Truth Project, and you're talking about sharing the gospel or the truth in a culture that does not embrace truth. So we live in what's called postmodern era, and, and that means, among other things, that generally the culture says there is no such thing as absolute truth. Truth is whatever you determine it is for you. It's true for you. It's not true for me. So if you're a Christian and you're representing someone who said they are in themselves the truth and that God has absolute, some things are right, some things are wrong, you're marginalized from the start. You've got to convince people that there's such a thing as truth. The church is marginalized in some degree because we live in a postmodern culture. Um, 
the world along with that sort of has this message too that if there's no such thing as truth, there's no ultimate standards and that means that you're okay where you're at and I'm okay where I'm at. And if there's not such a thing as sin, if we're not deficient because we're really okay, then you don't need a Savior either. And you don't need a, a book like the Bible to tell you what's up and what's down and how to live. Materialism too, you just think of how, how well off uh, even in a down economy, how well off we have it. All of us are born with a God-shaped vacuum, philosophers have talked about in the past. And yet because we live in a very rich world, what we tend to do and what the culture around us tends to do is take stuff and use it to, if not fill, because it never can fill the void in us, but use it to sort of satisfy for a while that need we have for some greater reality, for some transcendent meaning in life. So we fill it with the stuff that we've got all around us in this culture. So the culture in which we're in tends to marginalize the church for sure. But then, you know, past that, of course, <clears throat> the church hasn't helped its own cause in the West either. And I'm just thinking, go back over the last few decades and think of scandal after scandal, sex, money that's rocked the church. So if you're in the church and you're trying to tell the culture and those in it around you, hey, there's a better way and there's truth and God has standards and you're in trouble. And they look at those from the church and say, well, <clears throat> you're just like us. In fact, you're worse. You say one thing, live another. You can imagine it doesn't, it doesn't help your cause. It doesn't help the cause of Christ or the church. Or two, just on a very minimal way, um, even for Christians, I don't think we value the church typically or certainly not the way Christ does. For a lot of us, church is showing up someplace on Sunday morning and sort of putting in our time. It's a, it's a good thing to do. It's an observance, etc. But that's not where our life or our heart and soul is focused, as it should be, as I'll argue here in a minute. So the church has fallen on hard times, and I just think we really need to wake up to what God's called us to in the church, what He wants from us. So if we wake up, what's so important about the church? And what would that look like for us? What would we do? How would we think? How would we change if we wake up to Christ's call to us as the church? I'm going to share a few things. You'd probably think of some others. The first is this. <clears throat> Before you think about any of your responsibilities, I'm a Christian and therefore I have responsibilities to Christ as a member of the church, etc. Don't think about any of that on the front end. Just think about this. This is transformative. Uh, it's just this, that Christ loves the church. Christ loves the church. Um, when we undervalue the church, uh, we're undervaluing what Christ loves. This is mind-boggling that Christ loves the church. But if we get a hold of that, that changes the way we see the church and see our call and our responsibilities. You know, uh, kids, I don't know if they still learn this or not, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know, for Christians, I think we get it that God loves us. Or we buy the idea, if, if we don't know what that looks like boiled down into our lives, at least we get the concept God loves me as an individual. But past that, Christ loves us collectively. Jesus loves the church, that's us, corporately. And not just a little, but a lot. So in Ephesians 5, when Paul wanted to tell husbands how to think about and love their wives, he goes to Christ's love for the church when he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church 
and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church so much that he sacrificed himself for her benefit to redeem this bride to himself. Christ loved the church. That's the model for husbands, the fact that Christ loves the church. But if you go to Revelation 3, you see the same thing again. And this is striking to me. The, the series title, Wake Up and Strengthen the Things That Remain, that's from the letter to Sardis in Revelation 3. And Christ addressed seven churches in those first couple of chapters, chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation. When he gets to the last church, Laodicea, it's a church he can't say one positive thing about. He, he doesn't have one good thing to say about this group. He commends what he can. When he gets to this church, he has nothing to commend. But he still says this. He reproves them and he says this, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. In other words, even to this local church that he can't say one good thing about, he loves them. And because he loves them, he's telling them, Hey, you're blowing it. This is what you need to do. Wake up. These are the things you need to be about. Now, if I get it that Jesus loves me as an individual, and I know myself at all, it's kind of mind-boggling that, that the Lord loves me. But then you take the group of us, and all our warts, and all our failures, and all our sins, all our evils, all our lusts, all our failures, whatever, roll them all together, and Jesus points at us and says, I love the church. I love my bride. And that is, in fact, you know, that's the language of the Scripture in our relationship with Christ. It's, it's not something passive. It is this energized, intimate relationship of a bridegroom for his intended. That is the language of the relationship Jesus has with his church. It's intimate. It's personal. So Jesus loves the church. And he loves lion and lamb just as we are. And if you're from another church, He loves your home church. He loves the church in the world. Failure that we are, all the ways we blow it, all the ways we miss it, Christ loves us anyway. And if we get a hold of that, Christ loves the church, that changes the way we think about the church. And if we know Christ loves the church, that engenders love on our part for His church as well. So to start with, before you think of anything you need to do, Just try and get a hold of this. Christ loves the church. Because of that, because we've got this special, intimate, loving relationship with Christ, there are some responsibilities that come along with this. The first one in my mind is this. The one thing that you can do, or that the church can do, individually or collectively, the one thing that we can do that Christ can't do Himself or can't accomplish on his own, is this. We can give Christ our passion, our heart, our love, our devotion. You know, you could give the Lord everything else, and if he didn't have your heart, it's meaningless. It's without value. In fact, when you read these letters, the first church, Ephesus, I mean, he lauds them, he praises them for all this stuff. But then he says, you know, as, as good as you are, I've got one, one problem with you, and it's this. You've left your first love. You're doing all these great things, but here's the problem. You've left your first love. So significant that he says, I'm going to remove your candlestick if you don't repent. If you don't go back to first love, you're not going to exist as a church, as my representative, as a group on the earth. 
That's the one thing that God wants from us and that Christ wants from His bride. Above all else, it's our hearts. It's our affections. It's our emotions. If He doesn't have that, then nothing else really matters. Can you imagine if you're married, if your spouse showed up every day, but there was no passion, and you just know she's going through the motions, he's going through the motions, they really don't love me. I mean, how, how much would you care about all the other stuff? It would have very little significance. If you know your spouse loves you, then that informs everything else that goes on in that relationship. The one thing Christ cares about the most from us is that He has our hearts, our devotion, our passion, our worship. You can use all kinds of terms there, but it's us. When Paul wrote the Corinthians in his second letter, they had a lot of teachers in their midst. They were probably academic. They were sophisticated. They were well-spoken, but they were leading the Corinthians astray. And Paul said this was his concern for this group. Chapter 11, verse 3, he said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Simple devotion to Christ. Paul says that's what he's after. In fact, before that he says, I've betrothed you to a bridegroom, and I feel like you're playing around with somebody else. Simple devotion to Christ. Negatively, 1 John 2.15, John says this, Don't love the world. Don't love the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Uh, God and Jesus are these, they're jealous. And if you're in a relationship with them, they want you and they want all of you. And jealous, biblically, this is a good thing. This isn't the way our culture tends to use it. Jealous is to passionately desire for yourself that which is rightly yours. The Sunday school class has talked about this a little bit. Jealousy in the Scriptures is a good thing. If you're not jealous about what is uniquely yours, you're missing something significant. So God is jealous towards us, and He tells us He wants our love and our passion on one hand, and that we shouldn't be giving that affection, that love, and that passion in other places, in the world. And in John's language, cosmos or the world, it just means this world system that is at odds with God that doesn't love Christ, that rejects Christ. So when we love the world or the things in the world, it's as if we're two-timing on our fiancé, on the one we're promised to and pledged to. So pure devotion to Christ on one hand and, and a commitment, a purity on not loving the other things that are at odds with that relationship with Christ on the other. If we get that we needed to be devoted to Christ, that's good. The second one is difficult, <clears throat> um, and it's this. Uh, Christ wants us to be devoted to each other. Devoted to each other. You know, all of us have feet of clay, and we sin, and we sin often in many ways. And the closer we get to each other, the more we realize that. And so it's easy for us to look at other Christians and think them down or talk them down. But we're called to be devoted to other Christians. For us waking up to Christ's call for the church, part of that is a devotion to each other. So for instance, 
Paul says in Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. Be devoted to one another, work at, consciously be committed to each other. Brotherly love, this, this commitment to that person's good, to the church's welfare. You see the same thing again in Romans 14.19, uh, pursue the things which make for peace, the building up of one another. And the last, 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's easy to look around and see the faults in each other or the faults of a church, a local church. You know, people change churches all the time because they, they like this, but they don't like that. They like that guy, but they don't like her. You know, it goes on and on and on. Devotion to each other requires a certain kind of commitment and maturity. And without that, we just write people off and we write churches off and we just keep going down the road. We've talked about this in the last couple of months. But waking up to Christ's call to the church includes being devoted consciously, thoughtfully, passionately towards each other, for each other's good, for that local church's, that local group's good. It requires commitment and maturity. It doesn't come easily. The third is this, that we, whether we want to be at times or not, we represent Christ to the world. When I was thinking about this and going through my list of what this means... I thought I'd better stick this in front. If we made it our resolve to do no more than this, this would be a good start on being Christ's ambassador to the world, and it's this, just not to shame the name of Christ. Just not to dishonor the name of Christ. If we, if we rose no higher in our expectations on ourselves than that, that would actually be a good place. You read in the Old Testament in David's days, this thought of I'm, I'm God's man and I'm known as that. And so when I sin, God says, you've given the enemy occasion to mock my name or to disparage my reputation. And you know, as Christians in the West, we've just, man, we've majored in bringing shame on Christ's name and to Christ's cause. So before you even get any higher than this, if we just said, Lord, keep me from bringing shame to your name. Keep me from dishonoring you. This would be a good thing. I heard a guy teaching on the radio on my way home Friday, and he had told the Lord, he'd sort of made these resolves with the Lord, and he said, Lord, if you know I'm going to go down this road and bring dishonor to you, just take me out before that happens. And I thought, I like his thinking. Uh, prevent me, if I go down that road, Lord, if you know that's where I'm going, prevent that from happening and just take me out. And that was a recognition on one hand of his own weakness and temptations, but it was also saying, Lord, while I'm rational and thinking about this ahead, I just say, I would rather go home and be with you than bring dishonor on your name or offend others. You know, too, Jesus talks in the Gospels about don't stumble these little ones. And and to stumble means to cause them to fall over so that somebody else that was following Christ, they quit following him because of me. So if we just make this low threshold, Lord, this is my goal. As your representative on the earth, just keep me from dishonoring your name. We'd be doing well. That'd be a good place to start. If we do that, we can move on to some other things, like sharing the gospel, which is positively what we're supposed to be doing. So for instance, Philippians 1.8, 
Paul's in prison and he knows these guys are sharing the gospel and he knows actually that they're doing it to spite him, to sort of rub it in his face that he's in prison, he can't go out and preach to the crowds and that's what they're doing. But Paul says this, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Paul said that's the bottom line. This is mind-boggling to me, but you know, because Jesus saves people through the truth of the gospel, a pagan should, could share the gospel with someone else and they could get saved because God will use the truth about Christ to save, whether it comes out of a pure heart or a believer even. God will use the truth about Christ to save. So Paul said, I don't care why they're doing it, just that they're doing it. And it's easy for us to sit back on our hands and forget that one of our prime responsibilities as Christ's ambassador on the earth is to make sure we're telling other people around us about Christ, who He is, what He's done, that they have a need. You know, even if they reject it 99 times out of 100, it's still our responsibility to communicate the gospel, to make Christ known to the world around us. That's our call. That's a huge part of our call. Sometimes that just means telling other people your story. Um, you know, one of the best ways to share the gospel is just to share somebody with someone what your story is. This was my life. This is how I met Christ. This is what Christ's work in my life did. This is where I'm at today. Peter talks about this in 1 Pete 3.15 when he says, Be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. You don't have to know theology for this. You don't have to know philosophy. You don't have to know anything more than this is what Christ did for me. This is what Christ did in my life. This is what happened to me. This is my story. You can share that with anybody. It's your story. You're always right. You're never wrong. You can do this. We can do this. Another thing along that line, and maybe the more you share the gospel, the more you'd see this. We are called to suffer rejection for Christ in this world. You know, uh, Jesus said, if I'm rejected in this world and you're my followers, you'll be rejected too. So if you share Christ with others, or if you're trying to do the right thing and you get suffering or shame or rejection in any form for that, don't feel bad. That, that's part of being Christ's representative or ambassador on this earth. It's suffering rejection. First Peter 2.21, you've been called for this purpose, called for suffering and rejection as Christ's ambassador on the earth. <coughs> We're called to represent Christ to the world. In your bulletin or on the white handout, look at that with me now, would you? On the top of that insert or handout is the Lion and Lamb Church mission statement. Uh, This this statement was developed several years ago, and like, like is often the case, you wouldn't believe how many hours and weeks and months went into coming up with this little short Mission statement, Lion and Lamb is a fellowship of worshiping believers committed to authentically pursuing a vital relationship with Jesus Christ and obeying all His commandments. Every one of those is packed with meaning and and on another time we'll talk about those. Normally once a year we go through this mission statement and just say this is what it's about. This year I want to do something a little different and it's this. Come up with your own mission statement for the church. When you're thinking about the church, this could be in general or for Lion and Lamb or if you call someplace else your home church, for that home church. But come up in your own mind with a church mission statement. This is harder than, than it sounds. 
write down some thoughts. If you said, this is the mission for the church, the church, the universal church, or my church, my local church, what would it say? What would it include? What would, would success look like for the church? Jot down some, some ideas. You don't have to, to formulate an entire thought right now, but jot down some ideas. What would that mission include? What's the call to the church? What would that mission include? And after you've jotted some of those ideas down, if you can, make a coherent sentence or phrase. This is the mission of the church as I understand it. Once you've done that, then ask yourself, what would it require for that mission statement to be fulfilled? These are the things that would would be needed. These are the changes that would be needed. This is the, the attitude or these are the actions that would be required for that mission statement to be fulfilled. This is what it would take. And then last, this is what would be required of me to be part of fulfilling that mission statement. We've talked again about how God's wired us and plugged us into the body of Christ. That's unique to each one of us. But as you look at yourself and the way God's put you together and the gifts and the calls He's got on your life, what does it look like for you to be part of fulfilling that mission statement? This morning, if you just think about it, if you jot some ideas down, that would be a good start. You don't have to get further than that. But this is a great exercise. As you see it, as you understand it, what does Christ want from the church? What's needed to make that successful or happen? And what's your role and what's my role in it? These are challenging questions. What's the mission of the church as you understand it? Let me close with this. as I was thinking about examples of this kind of relationship and uh, illustrations, the best one I could think of was out of the Old Testament, the the book, the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon or the Canticle of Canticles, depending on the translation you have, is a story, it's a love story about King Solomon and a bride, uh, the Shulamite. We don't know her name, we just know she's this dark-skinned beauty that Solomon's fallen in love with. And it's their story as they anticipate their wedding day and they search for each other and they find each other. And it's really, it's a story about passion and desire in all the best ways. It's a great story. It really is a real story about King Solomon and a real gal, just on its own level. But Beyond that, it also speaks to this relationship God's had us with people and Christ has with the church. And I think for me, that's the helpful part of it, to realize that Christ's story with the church is passion and desire. You know, you think of the Last Supper. Jesus says, with great desire, I have desired to eat this meal with you this meal of remembrance, this Passover meal that becomes what we call the Lord's Supper. And he says, I'll never eat this again until I eat it with you in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus in heaven lives with this anticipation of his reunion, his wedding with the church, with you and I. So that when we read the Song of Songs, the story about passion and desire and ultimately fulfillment, that's Christ's story with the church. In other words, this isn't a boring story. It's not a boring storyline you're in. 
The plot is rich and it's full and it's deep and it's filled with desire and longing. And that's the kind of intimate relationship Christ calls us to. And when Jesus says to Sardis, wake up. See, I think that's most of us. I think we're asleep. And we just don't get the kind of relationship Christ has called us to. Not only here, but what that's going to look like in the future. Heaven will not be boring. It'll be anything but boring. And you won't be wondering what to do when you see Christ face to face. It will be glorious. It'll be beyond anything we can think or imagine. And that's the story we're called to. And so what a tragedy for Jesus to have to tell the church at all, wake up. You got a form, you got a certain image that looks like life, but it's not. I think that's us. I think that's the church in the West today. And I'm not pointing at other people. I'm talking about us, all of us. That we should have the kind of aspiration a bride has for her wedding day. And with that kind of passion and desire, that's what should be shaping our life. And if that was the case, we wouldn't have to be worried about shaming or dishonoring the name of Christ because we'd want to do anything but. And we'd be loving what Christ loves because we love Him. We'd love the church. We'd be devoted to each other. This really does get down back to the Old Testament concept of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're called into a love story and a love relationship. And then love others as yourself. Those things happen if we love God. But we need to wake up and strengthen the church of Jesus Christ. And I think in large measure, we do that by getting a grasp of the kind of relationship we've been called into.